Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech, and this is the tech news for Tuesday, July 13th, 2021. And uh, there's some some rough stuff in here. In fact, let's start with some more bad news for software company SolarWinds. You probably remember that late last year, we had news break that hackers had infiltrated SolarWinds products and managed to create a supply chain attack that affected thousands of computer systems, though it appears the hackers really focused on a much smaller number of very high-profile targets, including U.S. Department of Defense systems, and that the hackers appeared to be operating out of Russia. Well, over this past weekend, SolarWinds announced that hackers were apparently able to exploit previously unknown flaws in two of SolarWinds products, and that these flaws are completely unrelated to the attacks from last year. So these would be called zero-day vulnerabilities, meaning that no one was aware that these things existed when the products went live. This vulnerability is in the company's ServU, that's S-E-R-V dash the letter U, line of uh, software products. Microsoft researchers apparently found the bug, but not before hackers had already learned of it themselves. As of this recording, that's pretty much all the information I have on this. SolarWinds stated that the company is, quote, unaware of the identity of the potentially affected customers, end quote, which is not a great start either. Microsoft found evidence of, quote, limited targeted customer impact, end quote. And according to Ars Technica, the vulnerability would allow hackers to gain privileged access after exploiting machines that were running ServeU Managed File Transfer and or ServeU Secure FTP with this vulnerability. At that point, the hackers would be able to access files on the infected system. They might be able to delete data. They could install new programs. They could essentially perform the sort of tasks that any administrator-level account could perform on the system. SolarWinds has already issued a quick patch to, uh, to be a temporary fix on this while working on a more permanent solution. On a slightly less dramatic note, Twitter recently admitted that the company had mistakenly verified a, quote, small number, end quote, of fake accounts shortly after the company reinstated its verification program. This is all according to The Daily Dot. A data scientist with the truly amazing name Conspirador Norteño found six accounts with that verified checkmark next to them. And someone created those six accounts back on June 16th, so they're pretty darn recent. And while all six were verified, none of them had posted so much as a single tweet. And two of them were apparently using stock photographs for their profile pictures. Twitter responded by copying up to the fact that somehow the verification applications for a small number of fake accounts had received approval. Uh, The company has since banned five of those six accounts. The sixth apparently uh, took itself down. Norteño also pointed out that these six accounts had a few suspicious followers in common across them to the tune of 
nearly 1,000 accounts, and he says that it looks as though these were all part of a larger botnet that includes at least 1,212 accounts. 1212. Don't know if that there's any significance to that. Probably not. I'm sure it's just a weird fact that it's a repeating number. Twitter's verification process is meant to allow notable people, that's at least notable in Twitter's estimation, to authenticate that a Twitter feed that purporting to belong to them does in fact belong to them. Uh, that way you're, you know, busy tweeting at Neil Gaiman. You can be certain that it's the real Neil Gaiman who's seeing your messages. I mean, heck, I actually have a blue check mark. I have a verified Twitter account. So clearly that whole notability thing is a pretty, you know, loosey goosey definition. Now for the record, I applied a few years ago when we first launched the forward thinking video series. So it was for work purposes and the check mark has just kind of stuck with me ever since. Not that I'm complaining about this. Now, obviously the fake accounts getting verified that raises questions as to how did they do that? How did they sail through the verification process in the first place? Particularly when there are actual real life notable people out there who never received a verification from Twitter. Uh, we don't have the answers to that. Down in Cuba, we're seeing a pretty familiar playbook being followed by the Cuban government there in response to growing protests as citizens voice their anger and displeasure regarding some major issues in the country, like food and medical shortages. Cuba is in the midst of a severe economic recession, which was exacerbated by COVID-19 and the fact that the entire tourist industry was effectively shut down for a year. Citizens have taken to the streets to protest the government's response to this and issues with food shortages and the like. And the government's response, in part, has been to shut down internet access. At least that appears to be the case. And thus, citizens have seen their ability to communicate and organize with one another online cut off. Now, in some areas, such as Havana, where the protests are particularly you know, large, the internet outages were more severe, which seems to support the argument that this was a government-led uh, project. And generally speaking, communist countries like Cuba and China traditionally maintain tight controls over communication channels, and they use that control to limit what citizens can say or access in an effort to maintain authoritarian control. I'm not saying those are the only places where that happens or that authoritarian control is limited to communist countries, just saying that that tends to be a pretty common practice. Speaking of China, that country is leaning heavily on facial recognition technology as it attempts to handle new coronavirus outbreaks. According to Tech Explorer, China is pairing facial recognition technology with citizens' coronavirus test results. So in other words, you get tested for coronavirus, uh, the government essentially gets access to those results, and your health status becomes part of your identity. And the facial recognition systems keep track of where you're going and who you happen to be around, which probably sounds a bit scary to most of you out there, uh, including myself. Now, at the same time, China's facing a pretty difficult uh, situation that's in a tough position. The neighboring country of Myanmar is the site of some massive political unrest stemming from a coup that happened back in February. And some Myanmar nationals have fled to China in order to escape regional violence. Half of the new cases of coronavirus in this particular region of China 
seem to link back to Myanmar nationals, so that raises safety concerns there. Apparently, the facial recognition systems also have thermal detectors built in, so those can spot people who might have elevated body temperatures, which is a possible sign of infection. Not exactly foolproof or anything like that. Uh, you should never you know, depend solely upon a temperature check. But human rights advocates are rightly concerned that the trends we're seeing as far as surveillance and facial recognition go are going to continue even beyond the pandemic, with China leaning on those technologies while targeting ethnic minority groups or people who criticize the government, something that the country has been known to do extensively in the past. Google is protesting a nearly $600 million fine that the company faces in France, at the heart of the matter is that the French courts have placed numerous injunctions on Google requiring the company to pay publishers for their content, something the court says that Google has largely disregarded. Now, anyone who has worked in the publishing industry knows that advertising revenue has dropped significantly over the last couple of decades, making it harder to run a viable publishing business online. The European Union holds platforms like Google partly responsible for this, arguing that these platforms make it possible for people to access publications without actually visiting the home site of those publications, thus denying those companies ad revenue. If you can read the whole article through some sort of preview that's hosted on, say, a Google site, and you never go to the, the home newspaper webpage, well, that, that paper is generating work, but not seeing any revenue for it, at least not for that instance. Google claims that it has been working in good faith to address these issues, with a guarantee that the company will eventually pay out around a billion dollars over the next three years to various publishers, as well as to collaborate on a licensing agreement that would provide revenue to newsrooms. The French court requires Google to pay the 500 million euro fine and to form a compensation plan with publishers within two months or face additional fines. This is similar to the stories out of Australia, with media companies based in Australia uh, having issues with platforms like Facebook and Google, and it really points to the complicated nature of business, information, and platforms. Technode reports that ByteDance, the Chinese company that's best known here in the United States as the parent company of TikTok, will be eliminating its 996 strategy. That refers to a work week that consists of 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. That's the 9-9 part. And the 6 part means that you're working Sunday through Friday, or six days a week. Yeah, several Chinese companies operate with this strategy. Uh, many of them use a big week and small week approach. That is where employees will alternate working either five days a week or six days a week, alternating every other Sunday. But this is coming to an end for ByteDance in August. While the decreased workload might be nice, it is likely to bring along with it a salary cut, perhaps as much as 20%, which my math tells me would be excessive if you're cutting two workdays out of a typical month, right? That 20% for two days out of the month, that's excessive. Anyway, around a third of the company's workforce when surveyed about this said they would prefer to keep their base pay where it is and continue working longer hours, which... Y'all, that just makes my heart ache. But if you're trying to make ends meet, a cut in pay is a real unwelcome complication. It, 
is a tough situation and I don't have any easy solutions here, but it really paints a pretty bleak picture, right? This idea that, oh, I can't cut back on working 12, 12 hours a day, six days a week because I can't afford it. Ouch. On a much lighter note, over in the UK, we're seeing a creative approach to advertising at soccer games or, you know, in the UK, football games, but I'm American, so I tend to call it soccer. But many football stadiums in England have digital signs that can display ads, which is something that's pretty common in modern sports facilities in many parts of the world. But what's interesting here is that people will see different ads depending upon where they are. Those attending a game in person will see ads displayed on those digital screens, but people watching the game on television might see a totally different ad essentially superimposed or digitally replacing the ad that's quote-unquote really there. Broadcasters will be able to work with advertisers and swap out ads, creating a new source of revenue. So the sporting facility can make deals with, say, local businesses, and the broadcasters might go for larger regional businesses. Or you could imagine a deal that includes both the in-stadium experience for the people who are there in person, as well as the televised audience, and you just pay a larger fee to get both. We've seen some other examples of this kind of digital advertising, sometimes with glitches that can affect a TV audience's viewing experience. Now, thankfully, if you're watching the game in person, you would never know about those glitches because, so far, they don't actually, you know, cross into reality yet. I'm sure we will see more incorporations of technologies like this, and when we see more augmented reality in the future being incorporated into sporting events, we'll see even more targeted advertising. Potentially, we could reach a point where every single person attending a game is seeing a different targeted ad through their own personalized AR system. What a world. I've got a few more stories to cover, but before I get to that, let's take a quick break. We were just in the UK before the break. Now we're going to take a trip across the English Channel and head over to the continent of Europe. Uh, UK is not included in this, but Intel recently announced that the company intends to invest as much as $20 billion over the next several years to build out some chip manufacturing plants, potentially in Europe. The world is still in a semiconductor shortage, which is largely because of the coronavirus and how that completely disrupted the semiconductor supply chain. Over in the EU, the plan is to boost Europe's market share of semiconductor manufacturing from 10% where it is today to 20% by 2030. That's a pretty aggressive timeline, but the demand for semiconductors is definitely there because we're seeing industries from consumer electronics to the automotive industry struggling to find the chips that they need to produce finished products. So we're seeing shortages in lots of industries because of semiconductor shortages. Intel executives have been meeting with various government officials in Europe, clearly feeling out where it might be most advantageous to establish manufacturing facilities. Now, this is a complicated process, one that often sees companies play regions against each other in an effort to get the best deal out of the situation. Sometimes that can get pretty ugly. We've seen it happen several times here in the United States. 
Complicating matters is that the cost of business in places like Europe and the United States is higher than places like, say, China. Sometimes it's higher to the tune of around 30% more costly. Of course, that's partly because places like Europe and the United States have tighter regulations in place to provide at least some level of protection to employees, and places like China largely do not. Fun times. On a related note, The Verge reports that the PC market is easing back a little bit after having a pretty booming 2020. The market is still growing, but it is growing at a reduced pace, so it's growing more slowly than it was in 2020, and possible reasons for that include a slightly lower demand for PCs after the initial pandemic rush, and the growing semiconductor chip shortage being part of a factor there. Businesses might be back into purchasing computers with more businesses reopening after a year plus of being shut down, so that could change things a bit. But on the consumer side, it could be that things are slowing down because people have already done bought their ding-dang computers last year. However, we do have Windows 11 launching later this year, and that might end up driving more PC sales in the near future. Now, again, I do want to stress, this doesn't mean we're seeing the PC market suddenly get into trouble. The industry is still growing quarter over quarter. It's just doing so at a slower rate than what it was doing earlier. The company Amazon continues in its quest for world domination and now has its sights set on Santa Claus. You heard it here first, because like Santa... Amazon plans to know when you are sleeping and know when you are awake. But since I think Amazon is largely an amoral company, I suspect they don't actually care if you've been bad or good. So, I mean, be good for goodness sake, just, you know, as a favor to me, but I don't think Amazon cares one way or the other. No, Amazon has secured permission from the United States Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, to make use of a 60 gigahertz radar system in some future unannounced consumer device that would be able to sense gesture commands and, here's the biggie, monitor sleeping habits through radar. Now, this is all from the register, by the way, and the permission from the FCC was a necessity because the 60 gigahertz frequency range is above what's typically allowed for consumer devices. Every nation has divided up the Uh, electromagnetic frequency spectrum to designate which slices of that spectrum can be used for different purposes. And that way you avoid having two competing technologies trying to make use of the same frequency space, which would create a lot of interference. So in this case, the FCC was uh, needed to, to be brought in on this because that that frequency range is typically not something that a consumer electronic product would be able to take advantage of. So Amazon had to get permission from the FCC, and the FCC granted that permission. Uh, now, the register reports that as of now, the, the proposed device only has the vaguest of outlined purposes. Uh, it will be a non-mobile device, so... Presumably, this would be something that you would just plug into a wall outlet in your home. And the intended purpose, according to Amazon, is to give people who might have difficulties with some physical activities 
a way to interact with Amazon systems more effectively, that being like the gesture controls and stuff, to have a more finely tuned approach to that. So that's good in a way. I mean, it's a a way to improve accessibility, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, But also that such a device would help for the purposes of, quote, sleep hygiene, end quote. Now, if you think it's a little creepy to have a huge company keeping track of when you're asleep and when you're awake, then you're thinking a lot like yours truly right here. I think it's really creepy. However, there are a lot of sleep tracking devices out there, and many of them do phone home to keep track of stats, like how many hours you've slept or how many times you tossed and turned or woke up overnight or whatever. So honestly, this isn't really new or unique to Amazon in that sense. Like, we do have other technologies that do this kind of thing. But however, I think it's the thought that this thing is effectively watching you sleep that makes it seem creepy to me. But again, many of us, myself included, have used activity trackers that also act as sleep trackers. So I admit, I'm being a little bit hypocritical here. Uh, It also is probably because Amazon's sheer size as a company is something I find intimidating And to think of a really big company closely monitoring when people are asleep or when they're awake is unsettling. I imagine a lot of that information could go into all sorts of different algorithms, including recommendations. Like if I logged into Amazon and suddenly saw that all the recommendations were for pillows and white noise machines, I'd think, okay, Amazon knows too much about me. It knows that I've I've been dealing with insomnia recently, right? Like that would just be creepy. Who knows what this will ultimately turn out to be, and we may not ever actually see this consumer product. That's another possibility. We just don't know enough yet, but uh, it does look like it's yet another step into the world of quantifying everything about ourselves and handing that data over to some other party, something that I think we should probably re-examine sooner rather than later. And our last story is that a group of researchers with the National Institute of Information and Communications Technology, or NICT, over in Japan, have used a four-core optical fiber system with a sophisticated multiplexing technology to send data across a physical cable at the incredible throughput of 319 terabits per second across a distance of just over 3,000 kilometers, 3,000 and one, to be precise. That is a truly astonishing data throughput rate for that kind of distance. These days, we talk about really fast home internet connections having a throughput of around a gigabit per second, maybe more, like maybe up to 10 gigabits per second. That's what we think of as being screaming fast for consumer internet, but a gigabit is a billion bits per second. 319 terabits is 319 trillion bits per second. To be clear, we've seen even greater throughput than this before, but only at extremely short distances. This marks a world record for transmitting that much data per second at that kind of distance. Now, this doesn't mean we're right around the corner from all having terabit per second home connections, which would be nice, (laughs) but it's not going to happen. This technology is more likely to be used in applications that relate to backbone operations of the internet. But it's an incredible technical achievement. Now, one day I hope to maybe bring someone on the show to talk about fiber optics and what multiplexing really means and how it works. 
because that subject very quickly escalates beyond my own understanding of it. I mean, I can always research into it and and take copious notes and such, but really, I'm just saying that if I try to do an episode about this all by myself, I'm probably going to get something wrong uh, because it is a pretty complicated topic. But I think I might have to get somebody on to really talk about it and get into the nitty gritty of how fiber optics work and also why it can be so hard to get access to fiber optic service, depending on where you live. But that's something for a later episode. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in Tech Stuff, reach out and get in touch with me. The best way to do that is over on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW, which I don't think is verified, but I am. (laughs) And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.